Morning. Um, it's really good to be here again with you. I was here actually last week. Um, we were baptizing one of our RUF students at WashU into the congregation here at Memorial, and it was such a joy to see that and, and, and to be a part of that. Um, I'm not done with baptism because we're actually going to look at Jesus' baptism today. So um, we'll be looking at Matthew 3. Uh, just a few, few verses there. I'm going to read the passage for us, and we'll, we'll dig in. Um, I'm going to be preaching from the, uh, from the ESV text. Uh, I hope that's okay. Um, I, know, I think a lot of you guys have the NIV in front of you. So Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying... I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Is God's word given to us for our good? Let me just pray for us real quick. God, we come to worship you today, and as we open your text, open your word, I pray that you would also open our hearts to receive it that you would brighten Jesus for us and sweeten the gospel for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Are you exhausted? Maybe the better question is, aren't you exhausted? I was born in Korea, um, and Korea's been on the news a lot lately. Uh, And they say that Korea is as exhausted of a place as any. Uh, Korea is known to be a very, uh, very fast-paced society. It's, it's known to be stressed out and this high-pressure population. In fact, uh, a year or two ago, the New York Times had dis- described the country as constantly on the verge. Uh, the New York Times said, Korea is always on the brink of a national nervous breakdown. And so because of this, this pace and the, and the grind and the competition... Uh, they're learning to figure out how to deal with it and cope with it. One way that they did was they put out something called a space-out competition. It's a competition where people are basically spacing out together. So here's the headline that I, that I, that I saw in an article. 2,000 people applied to do nothing in Seoul, South Korea, one day. So on a Sunday afternoon, June 2016... People gathered at a park in Seoul to do absolutely nothing. Contestants can be disqualified for laughing, for using technology, or for falling asleep. The only thing you're allowed to do is stare off into space for 90 minutes. (laughs) Here's a quote from someone who participated in this event. I was suffering from burnout syndrome and would feel extremely anxious if I was sitting around doing nothing not being productive in one way or another. 
And I thought to myself, we would all feel better about doing nothing if we did nothing together as a group. (laughs) Did you hear that? Like, they feel exhausted and ashamed and they're bugging out. But if they knew that others were in it with them, they can feel better if it was done in community. That's like the whole irony of it, that that even when they're trying to rest, they're they're competing. (laughs) I I think you and I get that, though, don't, don't we? I tell you what, a ton of people do because this event is actually spreading. This event was found in Beijing the following year. And I would guess that it wouldn't be too far away from New York City or to a city near us, right? St. Louis. Space out competitions, it's not just for overworked people out there. Perhaps you and I also know something about this too. Exhausted. Exhausted from projects and deadlines at work, exhausted from unexpected health concerns that you've been dealing with, exhausted from marriage and kids, maybe family situations being in a tougher season, exhausted from a long semester if you've been a student, exhausted from managing your personal finances and budgets and and wondering how it's all going to fit and work out, exhausted from trying to maintain that image of yourself exhausted, of course, from our own sin and brokenness, from our own feelings of inadequacies and bitterness and our defeats. Maybe we know a thing or two about being exhausted. So where do we go? To whom do we go? We go once again to the one who has the words of eternal life. We go to Jesus who has a word for us. And we start at the very beginning, at Jesus' baptism. You know, the, the people in John the Baptist's day, they were exhausted too. And so they went out into the wilderness looking for something. And so Matthew's gospel picks this up in chapter 3. Kind of, everything kind of launches from this event. I mean, Matthew talks about the, the birth and infancy of Jesus, right? And some of the events surrounding it. But, but he fast-forwards 30 years, and he picks up with John the Baptist. Now, now, we know that John the Baptist is a prophet. He, he's got all the telltale signs. He wears eccentric clothing. He eats wild food. He moves into an undeveloped part of town. You read all this in the earlier part of chapter 3. And he quotes things from a bygone generation. We've got two options here. He's either a hipster or he's a prophet. <laughs> and it, it, here's the thing, right? There, there hadn't been a prophet in 400 years. But that anticipated time of human history had arrived. The silence was broken. John the Baptist brings the message that the fullness of time was upon them. It's time to prepare, folks. Well, where has God always prepared his people? In the wilderness. It was a place where an exhausted people would go out. They came out of bondage and would find a God who would care for them and speak tenderly to them and lead them into rest. So the time that God would once again bring them out into the wilderness had arrived. God's people followed the prophet into the wilderness and then out to the Jordan to be baptized. They were ritually cleansing themselves. It's a sign that they needed to live anew under God's rule and washed in its waters. Like like their forefathers were baptized, crossing the Red Sea, and they became a new people, they too needed to turn 
from their self-rule, their fierce self-reliance, from their exhaustion of sin. So there's this heightened sense of anticipation in the air. The countdown had started, right? John the Baptist baptized them. They came out of the water, and nothing happened. A whole population of people had gone out. They'd heard the message of John the Baptist, gotten into the water, and came out with soaking wet clothes, standing on the banks, and now what? And then, this Jesus that Matthew had talked about being born, this Jesus came and joined the people. And then, something happened that day. Jesus gets into the water to get baptized. And I think this passage is begging us to ask a couple questions. Why did Jesus get baptized? And why would that matter for me? I think this morning we look at two things that, that help us answer these questions. Two things I think our exhausted hearts are needing. The first is that Jesus speaks about something. Jesus speaks about something. Okay? And then secondly, something is spoken over start with the first thing. Jesus speaks about something. Jesus here is coming out of obscurity. Like, who is he really? This is what Matthew is beginning to uncover. For me, it's kind of like that painting by Rene Magritte. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, There's this painting. It's the one with the man in a suit, and he's got this bowler hat on, but his face is completely obstructed by a green apple. You know the painting that I'm talking about? It's interestingly titled, Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself, the Son of Man. What's Rene Magritte doing? We, We see the apple. He's showing you the apple. But what do we really want? All we want to know is the face behind it. It's, it's, it's kind of like the same thing with the electronic music duo, Daft Punk. Have you heard some of their music? Daft Punk puts on these space helmets, and so all their concerts, and you, like, they're never, you don't know what they look like. Or it's kind of like Teller from the, the, the Magic Duo team, Penn and Teller. Uh, the running gag is that Teller never speaks, right? So what does he sound like? Does he have an accent? Is his voice deep? Is he a high talker? We don't know. He lets his magic do all the talking, right? Well, God's people have been hearing about this coming Messiah. Well, the apple in front of Jesus is being slowly moved away. Teller is clearing his throat. The space helmets are coming off. And if you notice, these are the very first words that Jesus says in Matthew's book. And I think Matthew is saying, you got to pay attention now. You got to pay attention. The prophetic voice, which had been silenced for 400 years, is being unsilenced by John the Baptist. But now, once John the Baptist stops speaking the next thing to happen is God's going to show up and speak. What does he say? He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. (laughs) Now this is a bit cryptic, isn't it? In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus is kind of like in a mild debate over this all. Jesus comes out into the wilderness and insists that he gets baptized too. And John the Baptist says no. John the Baptist doesn't think that Jesus needs to subject himself to this cleansing, right? That's this admission and confession of sin and impurity. In fact, John the Baptist 
turns the tables around and says, look, you should be baptizing me. It should be the other way around. And Jesus responds to him with these words. It is to fulfill all righteousness. Because John the Baptist represents the last of the old order. The last prophet of a closing age. A new age is dawning. But in order for Jesus to bring this new age, he needed to do what no one was able to do yet. He had to live the life that no one in human history had done. He had to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is saying, I want to do the will of God more than anything else. And I'm pledging to do it. And here is where an exhausted people find words that are deeply loving and rich for our soul. You see, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, to be the truly, fully human, right? The fully flourishing man. But none of this would matter if it didn't connect to us, would it? Like, what good is it if Jesus lives the truly righteous life? It only matters if he identifies with those who haven't. If he identifies with us. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's identifying completely with us. This passage is all about the deep love and commitment that he has for you and me. This is why we see Jesus get baptized. Here is the Son of God, the perfectly righteous one, getting into the same waters as the sinners. The shamed, the rejected, the ones with checkered past or who are current addicts the ones who can't get it right even after the umpteenth chance, the ones who've let others down, the ones who've even snickered at God and mocked him, the ones who are exhausted. And Jesus says, let me be one of them. In fact, though he was no sinner, he will be the greatest sinner. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't come to shame us, Or look at us with scorn. He didn't go out there and say, tsk, tsk, look what you've done with yourselves. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Don't you really need to get in there? You've already gone in. I think you need a second rinse. He's not doing that. He's not identifying sinners. He came to identify with sinners. That's what baptism is. It's a sign and seal, a symbol, a promise of our union with God, that we belong to him. Jesus is identifying with us. God the Son is united with you, and you are are united to him. The baptism is where everything about Jesus launches, because really it's the precursor to the cross. As he steps into the water, he's taking his very first public step toward the cross. And in this passage, we can know that he isn't ashamed to be identified with us. He's not ashamed. And we need this. We do. You see, when people have, when when people fail, right, or they have this kind of stink or stain on them, right, our tendency is to avoid such people, isn't it? It's kind of like what John Steinbeck once wrote in his novel. He He wrote this about one of his characters whose failure was out in the open, And he writes this. And now a wave of shame went over the whole procession. They melted away. The beggars went back to their steps. The stragglers moved off. 
the neighbors departed so that the public shaming of the man would not be in their eyes. So that the public shaming of the man would not be in their eyes. When people fail or have this stink or stain upon them, we tend to avoid such people. The team that comes runner-up has the stink of being the loser. It's kind of astounding to me that the, the 1990s Buffalo Bills, they actually went to four straight Super Bowls, and they are regarded not as one of the best teams of all time, but the perennial loser because they lost in every Super Bowl. The public failure that someone has, and no one wants to be associated. Sponsors pull out. Associations are severed. PR is doing damage to home. And rightly so, probably. But have you had the stink or stain of failure in your life? In your performance? At work? In your family? In your relationships? We have so many failures. Academic athletic, physical, social failures, professional failures, romantic and relational, parental, even moral. The boss who's upset with you because you haven't done the job right. The cute guy or girl who ghosts you and don't return your text anymore. The project you dropped the ball on, the the blow-up you had on your children and the ways that you lashed out on them. For campus ministers like myself, it's, it's kind of losing that first round draft pick. That, that, that freshman who, who you just know would kill it for your ministry, would crush it, it doesn't come around anymore. And the ways that it can all come out sideways with habits and attitudes that we know are destructive, but we enter into them anyway. But Jesus doesn't look look at or treat us that way, does he? He wants you to know that you belong to him. When he says, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness by being baptized as a penitent sinner, he's saying, I'm here for you by doing what you couldn't, but I'm also taking on your failures. He can't go to the cross for you unless he humbles himself. And this frees us to be honest again. Frees us to to be honest. Because so much of life is about fake it till we make it. To look like we have it all together competence, productive, able to make things happen, be a mover and shaker, and it's all so exhausting. We do whatever it takes to not have our shame be seen in the eyes of the public. But Jesus goes into the waters with us, and he's in there with us. And so secondly, something is spoken over Jesus. There's an interesting thing that happens when Jesus is baptized. He comes out And it says that the heavens were open, like the sky is torn, and God the Spirit descended on God the Son, like a dove. That word descended has these connotations of fluttering. That God the Spirit fluttered down on God the Son, like a dove, and rested on Him. And I think what Matthew's doing is is he's tapping on our spiritual memory memory banks, banks here. I think he's having us recall Genesis 1 when the Holy Spirit hovered over the new creation. God the Spirit fluttered over this new creation. And there was also another time that a dove is prominently described in the Bible. And this is in Genesis 8 
when God was bringing forth a new creation again. As the water subsided, having washed the creation of its sins, Noah lets out a dove from the ark to see if it had found dry land in this new world. And so here, the Holy Spirit is likened to a dove, and it rests on Jesus, who's bringing forth a new creation. And we are told to behold. We know all about behold. It's not a word that we use a lot. The Bible actually uses it twice here. We don't say it a lot, but we understand it completely. It's the thing behind every viral, trending event, right? When we hold out our phones to our friend, right? And we say, you've got to look at this. We're saying, behold, right? May 1983. This is May, May 2018. So exactly 35 years ago, it was a behold moment in world history. This is when a young man first did this dance move while singing the song, Billie Jean. And people were like, wait, what just happened there? What was that? And people were trying to describe it. They're saying it's like he's sliding across the stage and the, the ground is like moving beneath him like a, like a walkway. It's, it's, it's like he's move, walking forward but, but also moving backward at the same time. And people are like, what is that? And this young man named Michael Jackson gets interviewed afterward. And the interviewer asks him, what is that? And he says, that's the moonwalk. And people basically everywhere were saying, behold, the moonwalk. As they're practicing it in their living room, right? I'm not the only one. Tell me, tell me I'm not the only one, right? In my socks with the hardwood floor. Matthew says, behold, something the world has never seen is before you. The heavens are opened. The heavenly realm has broken in. It's in breaking upon the earthly. And Matthew's describing what's happening. It's, it's like describing the moonwalk. The heavens are torn open. The long-awaited kingdom of God is advancing forth. It's led by a king. Jesus is the king who calls us to follow him into this kingdom, into this new creation. The dove is upon him. Come out of the ark. Join him. Have you ever wished this world looked different? Jesus does too. He's come to build that world and remake all things. And then again, behold, a voice emerges out of the skies. Behold, God the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Something is spoken over Jesus. God the Father is now saying, pay attention to him now. Pay attention. He's the child of God that we were all meant to be and intended to be. Right? This, this life that we have is so fragile. And Jesus has come to do something about it. Because Jesus has identified with us, if by faith we submit and we identify with him, God the Father says, you also, you too, are the beloved child in whom he is well pleased. The word spoken over him is what Jesus came to bring to us. It's for us to claim and to own. This is not cheap sentimentality or empty platitudes. This isn't, hey, you're going to be great. You'll be fine. It's all for the best. Everything's going to work out. 
we all want to hear and know that we are beloved and well-pleasing. Is there any question that drives us, that we obsess with more each morning than am I living rightly? Am I living well? Right? I mean, this, in biblical language, this is, am I fulfilling all righteousness? We want to know. We are beloved and well-pleasing is the answer to that obsession. Am I beautiful enough? Am I smart enough? Good enough? Am I cool and hip enough? Am I loved? Am I effective? We want to know these things. There's a cynical take on this too, right? Because it's such a harsh, harsh obsession that we deal with. I was shopping um, not long ago, and on a table, there was a t-shirt. And on the t-shirt, there was just a phrase over it on the chest. It said, try harder. And then there was a hat sitting next to that shirt. And it said, be better. Try harder. Be better. These are the messages that we are whispering to ourselves because we're unsure that we are living rightly. Keep trying harder. Do more. Be perfect. Make the right decisions. Be better. Walk around a college campus. Walk around WashU. Walk around town. Visit the shops and neighborhoods, the workout studio, the gallery, the coffee shop. You'll find these whispers. We're looking for some authority that can tell us, yes, you are indeed living rightly and going to be okay. We all have a vision, an orienting principle of life, what our life should look like and be. Well, who can offer that affirmation? If you're anything like me, we look for affirmation in places that are way too flimsy. It doesn't carry the authority that we need. We know the sting of our failures. So we teeter between our successes and our failures. We're vacillating back and forth. Yes, I'm going to be okay. No, I'm not. And there comes a point where our, our failures seem to define us more than anything. Our only recourse seems to be try harder, be better. The only way we know how to cope with the question of living rightly is to smother our failures with more successes and hope that we can move far away from our stinking stains. And so we put out, space out competitions. We indulge in, in escapist distractions. We look for ever shinier achievements, lifestyles and pursuits. We, look, we try to look like we have it all together and it's all so exhausting, isn't it? We recognize it so easily in others, but if we're honest, we recognize it in ourselves as well. Jesus is offering another way. He himself knew what being exhausted was all about. Exhaustion in both life and in death. He offers to you and me this. I get to redefine you. I get to rename you. Emerge with a new identity. You get to have beloved child in whom the Heavenly Father is well pleased, spoken over you. You are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. Easter is not that far behind us. And all the hopes of the resurrection that, that we got to hear about and celebrate. And yet you and I have been and will continue to look for ways to know that we are beloved. That we are ones who are leading lives that are pleasing. Where will you get it from? Only hearing it from God will fill you. You are being called to consider 
Were these words spoken over Jesus? Were these words spoken over him? Because if they were, then Jesus is enough. And if he is, then so are you. Because they're spoken over you too. Wherever you're at this morning, you need to know these words are for you. I want to close with this quote that I came across. And it kind of it stopped me in my tracks, so to speak. So this quote is this. Whenever I see it, no matter if it's day or night, no matter from which angle I'm looking at, I just fall in love. I'll read that once again. Whenever I see it, no matter if it's day or night, no matter from which angle I'm looking at it, I just fall in love. These are the words of Michael von Zabotowski. Who is he? I'm actually not that sure. (laughs) But he has what he calls an irrational desire, an irrational desire. He's describing what is, in his opinion, the pinnacle of automobile design the 1971 Aston Martin DBS. Now, I don't know what it means to love and desire a car like that. But isn't it a beautiful way to speak about the object of your desire? Do you imagine that Jesus looks at you and me in that same way? Whenever I see you, no matter if it's day or night, no matter from which angle I'm looking at, I just God, we give thanks to you that you do indeed look at us with this incredible, overflowing love and that you have this irrational, seemingly irrational desire for us. I pray that in whatever we face this week, as you call us to live out this life with you, that you would help us to do so knowing that we are well-pleasing in your sight. Help us to do this in Jesus. Amen.